uh, about the, the scripture reading that was read, I, I'm not trying to, to, to make that, this the key text or head coverings the key issue in this. I read this text, uh, had this text read because the most difficult argument, I, I think, that w- we have to deal with against the position that we've taken on the role of women comes from this text. And that's why I have, I have had the text read for you this morning, and uh, we will come back to it. We're in Lesson 9 of the uh, series, Can We Serve Church Cafeteria Style? And the topic before us for the next couple of lessons and last week as well is, Are Women Second-Class Citizens in the Church? There are a couple of key texts that I, that I want to call to your attention, I think, as we approach this subject, and, and it pertains to our attitude towards Scripture. And I'm going to come back to this at the end of this message But I would say this, far more important than years of study uh, of learning Greek or of learning Hebrew or of uh, learning theology, far more important to understanding the word of God is to have a heart which is eager and willing to obey it. And I got to tell you, folks, if we don't want to obey, we will find a reason and scholarship will just give us more excuses. To, to not do what God has told us to do. So that's why I focused on these verses. There, there are more, but look at Psalm 119, 33 and 34. Teach me, O Lord, the lifestyle prescribed by your statutes so that I may observe it continually. Give me understanding so that I, may, I might observe your law and keep it with all my heart. The psalmist loves the word And he asks for understanding of that word so that he will do it. And that is the commitment there. John chapter 7, Jesus replied, My teaching is not from me, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do God's will, he will know about my teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. I think those are very, very important verses. Okay, I, I was I was thinking about calling this section Deffy's hermeneutics, but that sounded a little too, a little too casual. So I, I've just called this my hermeneutical principles. My, that sounds so so much better, doesn't it? But but how you approach the scripture has everything to do with what you will get out of scripture. Let me add a couple to it that I that I uh, left out and didn't have room for. One is. Always approach the scripture as one under it, not over it. Approach the scriptures as one under the word, not over the word. One of the things that happens when you get into textual criticism is that you have to make some decisions where this manuscript family says one thing and this says another, and you have to make decisions. The danger with that is you begin to determine what is the word of God. And, and that's, that's a fairly frightening thought. Rather than to come to this book and say, this is the word of God, it's over me, not it's under me, and I pronounce upon it. It pronounces upon me, and I better listen to what it says. All right, I've got another uh, add-on that I'll give to you in a minute, but the passage simply means what it simply says. I have to tell you, I respect my brothers and sisters in, in, in the Reformed theological uh, system, and I buy into much of their doctrine of salvation. 
But I don't buy into amillennialism because they will say, I know Revelation chapter 20 says that there will be a thousand years, but you have to understand that verse in the light of all of Scripture. So they go through this whole thing. I mean, it's long papers. And the long and the short of it is, what that text clearly seems to say is not what it says. That's not my hermeneutic. My hermeneutic says, when a text seems to say something clearly, that's what it clearly means to say. And to pick up on that with my second wham at it, uh, the greater the distance between the premise and the conclusion, the greater the risk that it's wrong. In other words, when you have to go from here and this premise or this text, and you have to take this long, long system of logical leaps, I get off the train. I like nice short distances between premises and conclusions, and uh, I believe that's the safest route. Three, the more repetition, the stronger the point. That is, those things that are really important are going to be emphasized in more than one place, and repetition ought to speak to us. Now, pardon the, the, the shortness of my space on the frame there, but... Uh, this is the opposite side, the baptism for the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. One instance where that's, that is made, theologies may be built on that, but I have to tell you, folks, that's, that's one text that is the, the essence of which is never repeated. It's far better to buffer that off and say, I'm not really sure I understand what that text means. And because it's only said once, it must not be the most important thing in my life. So... I'm just going to put it there, and it's going to be to ask Jesus in heaven. And, and, you know, there are like 30 or 40 interpretations of that text. Just For me, I just walk on and say, what's the, the message of that whole chapter? And, and I've kind of set that aside as one of those difficult ones. And by the way, remember Peter says, or Paul says, uh, no, Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 4 that, uh, chapter 3, that, that people distort the things that, that Paul has said that are difficult to understand. The difficult texts are prime texts for cultists because they go all kinds of places to give them meaning. Obscure texts do not overrule clear ones. Now, I want to add to this. I was thinking about it, and I had my notes up here, and I was sitting back there, and I was thinking, oh, man, how am I going to remember this until I get up there? Inferences always give way to commands. Inferences always give way to commands, in my opinion. So we don't let obscure texts or difficult texts tell us that clear texts are somehow not saying what they say. Biblical truth contradicts worldly wisdom. Expect the scripture to fly in the face and that God, uh, of, of secular wisdom in, in many instances. Your ways, God says, my ways are not your ways. We have to trust him. And uh, last, look for a cross. And, and here's what I mean. The scriptures are all about a cross. They're about the cross of Christ. This morning I was thinking if I hadn't already messed up by calling out the same hymn twice, which makes senility look like it's at my back door, but it, i got to tell you, it looks different on the page than it does up there on the screen. I just got mixed up. And, called, and it's a good hymn to sing twice anyway. But, but look for the cross. I was thinking about that text in John chapter 12 where Jesus says, What shall I ask? Shall I say, Father, keep me from this hour? Don't let me suffer. Don't let me go to the cross. 
No, he says, Father, glorify your name. And one of the things that I was thinking about this morning, when we talk about the glory of God, that's a prayer we ought to be really careful about making because God may very well glorify himself through our adversity and suffering. He does that. He did that in his son. And so I always say, look for a cross. And, 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 and I'm not saying there are no crowns in Scripture, but I am saying that many of those crowns are future. And, and what bothers me is those people who want all the crowns of heaven to be here and now. God's going to bless the socks off of you. He's going to prosper you. If you've got enough faith, you're going to be healed. And I'm just saying, when you read Hebrews chapter 11, some people had wonderful deliverances. Other people got sawn in half. That's the way God may choose to be glorified. That's my hermeneutical principles for the day. So let's go to our approach in this lesson. Last week, I tried to set out from the scriptures a, a number of, of uh, things that indicate what God has done in terms of making distinctions between male and female. I actually thought of two more, by the way, since then. A, angels are always male in scripture. You can have all the female angels you want in your mind, folks, but they just aren't there in scripture. Secondly, when Israel goes up to worship three times a year, it is the males that are required to go. I'm just saying, that's just two more pieces of, of evidence that you stack on the pile and say, God somehow made distinctions. But that's not our point today. Our point today is to look at those arguments that people, and, and I'm speaking primarily within evangelical circles now. I know that those without would do it too, but they don't have to worry about using the scriptures. They just throw it over and forget it. So here are the things, at least in my mind, that, um, that evangelicals would use to, uh, to, 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 re to resist or oppose the position that I have taken. I've said it lower in my notes, but I think I'll say it here now. And that is, a lot of evangelical scholarship has not focused its attention on how you do church. A lot of evangelical scholars have not given much attention. A, because it, doesn't, it isn't like the doctrine of justification or the atonement of Christ where your eternal destiny rests upon it. And so you see in the Reformation that ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, was not the most critical thing they were addressing. And rightly so. They addressed the most primary things. But a lot of good biblical scholars have not spent a whole lot of time thinking about the church. And I hope that we as a church have been thinking about this now for 30-some years Maybe we've been working at it a little harder than some others, and that may count or it may not in your minds. But I want to respond to the strongest arguments that I know of that have been posed. First, from the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm looking at those women who led. And, and the, 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 the mindset is, if women led in the Old Testament, then they must be able to lead in the New. Isn't that good logic? Well, let's take a look. Miriam. She was a prophetess, Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. She did not lead men. Now, I, I want to say this. Uh, you got to watch, but in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, it talks about... You're going to fix me? Okay. It, it talks about the sons of Israel uh, sang these words. They've come through the Red Sea. They've been through the uh, the Exodus, and now they're, they're praising God for his... Woo-wee. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. They're praising God for what he's done, but it says, the sons of Israel sang these words. First, first bit. 
Now, some translations uh, neuter that, and they say the Israelites or the children of Israel. But it's also the word that's used for he had sons, he had daughters. I think, I think that gender is a part of it, and here's why. Because when you get down to verses uh, 20 and 21, now you see Miriam leading the women. So if I understand this account right, Moses is leading the men in this song that they are singing, and now the women come in in response. I have no problem with that. Miriam is leading. She's not leading men. She is leading the women. Fine. That's not making the point, however, that some would wish. I also add Numbers chapter 12. Remember, Miriam challenged the leadership of Moses, and she got a real strong slap on the wrist, a case of leprosy, for doing so. So when she stepped out of line in leadership, God dealt with her not as harshly as he could have, but he dealt with her severely enough for the point to be made. Secondly, Deborah and Barak, Judges chapter 4 and chapter 5. There is no question but what uh, Deborah is a prophetess. There is no question in my mind but what Deborah reveals the will of God to Barak in terms of how he is to go about doing battle. No issue to me in all of that. She was the one through whom God's commands were communicated. Barak led, but he led only if she would be by his side. So she doesn't take charge of the troops. She's not the commander of the troops, but, but Barak is, is not willing to go alone. He must have her there with him or he will not go, he says. And therefore, uh, she makes it clear that she will go, but it will not be, the glory will not go to the men. And you know the story of Jael, uh, J-A-E-L, not J-A-I-L, who drives the tent peg through Sisera's head. Boy, that's one great lasting headache, isn't it? And, and, uh, the, but the whole point is the women, the women do have a role, a more dominant role there because it is to the shame of the men. And here's my major point. Folks, look at the book in which it's written. Do you want to have me do a series on ideal manhood and use Samson as the model? Come on. The book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. This is a story about what happens when leadership doesn't exist. And so, yes, there is, uh, there are females who come in. I, I wished I could have pointed out on the, on the screen the article that Hampton's done. Excellent article on Bible.org, uh, the role of women in the book of Judges. It, it deals with the, with the entire subject of Judges and how it deals with women. I don't, I don't in any way speak ill of the women who, who acted obediently and in a godly way. But folks, it doesn't give a pretty picture about men. That's a rebuke. It is not an encouragement or a model for us to be following in these days. All right, Abigail, 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me, uh, this is one of my favorites, and, and I'll tell you why. Because I think it really helps us to clarify in our minds what real submission looks like. Remember the story? David has been uh, designated as Israel's coming king. He's had opportunity to take the life of Saul. He refuses to do that because he said, I will not 
take, uh, use my hand, as it were, to remove him, God's going to do that. When he wants to exalt me, he'll do that. He is hiding out from Saul, who is trying to kill him. He hides out in the mountains. And in the process of, of this hiding out in this desolate place, he comes across Nabal's shepherds. And, and uh, Nabal has got, has got these, these flocks. And because David and his men are there, they protect the flocks. They, they, they keep them from uh, marauders and all kinds of things, all kinds of benefits. And so when a festival day comes along, David makes a, a reasonable request. Would you like to make a donation so that we could celebrate on the festival? Give us a few sheep, some of those that we saved. And you remember, uh, Nabal says, no way. And then it's as though he doesn't know who David is. That's the, 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 the sense of it. But he says, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? And then he basically says he just won another, won another one of those guys that's rebelling against his king. He knew exactly who David was. What he rejected was the fact that David was God's designated king. And so he refused to give the, the offering. And you remember, David was not on his best either. David was a young hothead. And David basically said, that's it for me. I'm going in there. I'm going to kill every male in that household. Now, you'd have to say, isn't that a little bit excessive? But you ask for a gift, you're told no, and, and you're going to go kill every male in the household. So the servant comes back, tells Abigail what's happening, she makes a, a, takes a, a collection of this gift and she goes out and offers the gift to David. And so, uh, and, and then David takes her advice, cools off and doesn't uh, carry through with his plans. But let's look at some particulars. Nabal acted foolishly. He was, she said, and she said rightly, his name and his conduct are, he is a fool. He was. David likewise, was foolish. He was not acting in wisdom uh, at the time that he was threatening to kill all the males. So here's Abigail, a wise woman who has to deal with two fools. <laughs> one a part-time fool, David. He's just kind of off the track for a moment. And one who is, he's full-fledged, he's a career fool and at Nabal. And she's now got to deal with this in some way that is submissive. But my point is, she has two kinds of submission to deal with. She has her submission to God, who has appointed David as king, right? She has to submit like her husband did not. And she has submission to her husband. So let me make some uh, follow-up points. She acts contrary to Nabal's will without his permission, and if she had asked, he'd have told her no. But she didn't ask. She went out and she acted silently without his permission. Um, now, how does all that work? Well, it seems to me you've got to have a right definition of what submission really is. And so I say... When it comes to submission toward men, I'm talking about men amongst mankind. When you're talking about submission amongst men, mankind, that submission is never to be unlimited. That is, you do not have to do everything somebody in authority over you tells you to do, right? 
when the, when the apostles, uh, Peter and John, are told to stop preaching about Christ, says, you've got to decide what you're going to do. We must obey God rather than men. When God's commands differ from men's commands, we must obey God rather than men. So submission to men is not un- unlimited or unchallenged or unconditional. Uh, secondly, it is not unreasoned obedience. Uh, pardon me, but this is a chauvinistic stereotype that I've heard, and so I'm just going to say it. Somebody could have said to Abigail, Now, Abigail, don't you worry your pretty little head about little details like this. And the, in- the inference is women don't have to think when they submit. I, I, I suggest that's not true at all. You better think when you submit because you need to submit thoughtfully in a way that honors God and, and that uh, is truly submissive. That comes to my definition. It is the subordination of your interests to the interests of another at your own expense, I add, and possible risk, the cross. Uh, and you see that in Philippians 2 in particular in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submission is surrendering your interests to the interest of another. Now, what does she do? Number one, Abigail puts David's interests above her own. She goes out as the front line of defense so that in his anger he could well have uh, killed her or her ser- or the servants that accompanied her. She put herself at risk and she says, let your anger, let, let that be poured out on me. Let me be the one who suffers in this case. But what she is doing is appealing to David to do the right thing And she's not only submitting to him as her king, she is urging him to behave in light of that. He's the one that's acting in an unkingly manner. And she says, when you ascend to the throne, as you surely will, you do not want to have the memory of blood on your hands that was foolishly spilt. Remember, by the way, David asked God to build the temple. And what did God tell him? You're a man of blood. You can't do it. So her point to David, she was submissive to David in seeking his best interests and in urging him to act in a way that would better his kingdom. She puts herself at risk. She puts his interest above her own. Same is true for her husband. Had she simply stayed home or better yet, gone for a few days on the Mediterranean and gone on a cruise, her husband, her fool husband, would be gone. She acts as she does to save his foolish neck. And that's exactly what she does. Now, remember, God's going to take Nabal out later, but not this way. So what she does is put herself at risk. She subordinates her interest, one of which would have been to be without him. She subordinates her interest to his interest. And what she does, I would say, is truly submissive. So one of the things that I'm trying to say about that is when we're talking about submission, whether it's men to men above them or women to men, it is not unreasoned and it is not always doing exactly what you're told. Now, those are exceptions. Please understand that. They're exceptions. But it helps us to fill out, I think, the broader overall picture of what God would have us to know on that subject. All right. New Testament arguments against the submission of women in the church. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, remember the preceding verses have been talking about the conduct of the believers in the church speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and, and so on. In verse 21, it says, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I just have to say, folks, this is a really desperate effort. I, I, I mean, I, I've seen some at least noble efforts, but this one is really pathetic in my mind. The, the, the conclusion is, therefore, all submission is mutual. The man submits to his wife, the wife submits to her husband, and that means neither one is on a higher level of authority than the other. That's just desperate. Do we submit... In a, in, in a more general sense, is the man supposed to subordinate his personal well-being to pursue the well-being of his wife? Absolutely. But when you're talking about authority, my friends, then this is not teaching that. And let me just give you my points. Look at what follows. If this mutual subordination thing comes along, then uh, that must mean that Parents need to obey their children like children obey their parents. It must mean that masters obey their slaves like slaves obey their masters. My point is that you have three specific instances of how submission works itself out when there is a different level of authority. Marriage, family, and slavery. Now, in my estimation, what that's saying is that Ephesians 5.21 is a preface to all of those, and it is saying, let submission take place throughout the church. It'll take place in marriages in this way. It'll take place in families in this way, as, as children obey parents, as fathers assume their leadership role, which is very clearly said there, and as Slaves and masters act in a way that is glorifying to God. This text does not teach mutual submission. And we ought to be embarrassed to use it. Do something else. Find some other text. Not this one, please. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Remember the argument of Galatians. It is against Judaizers who have come in and said, being Jewish is really superior to being Gentile. And therefore, to be truly spiritual, Gentile Christians need to be circumcised. Oh boy, there's another male thing that happens. Well, let's not talk about that. But to be circumcised and then to place themselves under the law of Moses. And what is being said here by Paul is, in terms of your standing in Christ, when you look at the verses that just immediately precede that, what he's saying is, we are all by faith one in our Lord Jesus Christ. Being one doesn't mean being identical. It does mean that we have an equal standing because it is not our Jewishness or our Gentileness. Paul says in Romans 4, the children of Abraham are those who are the children of faith. Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council, the point is made. We couldn't do it either. We're all equalized by the cross. It's faith in Jesus apart from works. How can you have one upsmanship if it's all by his grace and through faith? There's no way you can, you can make upper and lower class Christians 
But you still have people who have places in society, and all of the rest of the New Testament makes those uh, distinctions. I point out uh, a, a number of texts, Second Corinthians uh, chapter 5, where he says uh, we, we've all become new creations, and he, but he says just before that, we do not distinguish in accordance with the flesh. So what that means is you may have a slave who is an elder in the church because those social distinctions don't equal the spiritual place that God may have. But in Christ, we are all one. Uh, and, and then First Peter chapter 3, I throw in there only to say that Peter talks about wives as being co-heirs, right, of the grace of God. He also speaks of them as the weaker vessel. Trust me, I'm not going down that path. I'm not sure I know what that means. But what he is doing is drawing a distinction between maleness and femaleness so that they are not equal in that sense, but they are equal in, in their share in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28 does not make the point of throwing away all the scriptures that we've studied. All right, here's my toughest text, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And, and the toughest verses are verses 4 and 5. So let me, just, let me just lay those out for you. Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head, for it is one and the same thing as having a shaved head. One. In these first 16 verses, there is no assured guarantee this is the corporate gathering of the church. That happens in verse 17 and following. No assurance that we're talking about the church gathered corporately. I'm not saying, by the way, it couldn't, ha- it couldn't be a part of what's happening. I'm saying just because one verse in this whole context uh, refers to a woman doing something doesn't mean she has to be doing it in, in the public meeting of the church. Secondly, when you look at the New Testament, you see no example of a woman ever doing that in public. No example of a woman ever praying or prophesying in the, in the public meeting or gathering of the church. Now, I toss in Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 11, because that's where Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. You remember, it's, it's clear that Paul is heading for trouble, and he stays at Caesarea. He stays with Stephen, Philip, sorry, Philip, who has four unmarried daughters who are prophetesses, Okay. Isn't it interesting that when it comes time for a prophet to reveal to Paul what lies ahead, Agabus, a man, comes from Jerusalem, and he makes that revelation. I find that, I find that pretty, uh, pretty interesting and significant. Thirdly, I say this may very well be private. What I said before was I don't think it's necessarily corporate, but it may very well be private for these reasons. One... Because of the angels. If a woman were praying or prophesying in privately, who else is watching other than angels? So you would appeal to that element because they are watching. They can see. Secondly, when you look at prophecy, you discover that it itself does not necessarily happen in public. And my, my sense would be that normally prophecy is revealed in private. I, I cited Daniel 2, 17 through 19. 
Look at that text. There you're talking about the dream uh, and, and th- that he is going to interpret. And remember, it says that he, he appeals for time. He and his friends pray, and the meaning of that is revealed to him in a night vision. My point is... Prophecy came to Daniel, in that instance at least, and perhaps in others. It came to him in private, not in the public setting. Now, it is announced more publicly, but the prophecy itself came uh, in, in a time of privacy. Here's another one, and you can just take it for what it's worth. When he talks about verse 13... Uh, He says, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? You say to yourself, well, who else would she be praying to? Why would he say pray to God? And notice he doesn't say prophesy here. He says simply pray. If you look at chapter 14 and verse 28... He's talking now about the one who speaks in tongues in the, in the public meeting of the church. And he says this. If there is no interpreter, he, by the way, notice the he's here uh, in, the, uh, in the text. He should be silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Now, all of those things put together, I think here's what I'm trying to say. In, in, a, in one last-ditch desperate effort to find some text which sets aside the clear teaching of 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, where it's, it, it's talking about submission and silence, what they've, what, what they've come to do is to take this one situation that is not clearly public, that has no uh, actual practical example to be found in the New Testament, And now they inferentially assume this to be on the level of of an absolute so that anything else that is said could not possibly be true. Now, here's where I come to my principle. An inference never overrules a command. (laughs) I'll grant you this much slack. If somebody wants to infer it could have happened, all I'm saying is get down to chapter 14 where it says, and if anyone will contest this, let them acknowledge this is the command of Christ. There is no question about chapter 14 in verses 33 down to the end. There's no question whether that's Jesus' command. The best one could do in chapter 11 is infer it, and I think weakly so. I just don't see how you can come up with that as some strong manifestation of something that throws everything over the the side of the ship. Oh, last, I I say, introductions are not conclusions. May may I make that point forcefully? Is it not true that when you are speaking, your introduction is trying to get people's interest, but you are not going to tell them everything you are going to end up saying? You're trying to kind of whet their appetite. Your conclusion is when you sum it all up and say, here's what I meant. 1 Corinthians 11 is the introduction to this section. 1 Corinthians 14 is the conclusion. And verses 33b through the end are the conclusion and they are the command of Christ. I mean, folks. Now, now, you think that that I'm probably pressing that a little bit? Go back to chapter 8. Paul says in chapter 8, dealing with meats offered to idols, he says, 
It is true. Here's the argument of some. It is true that there is only one God. And since there is only one God, then all of these gods represented by all these various idols, they're no gods. There, there, there isn't anything. Therefore, idols don't mean anything at all. Therefore, if I want to go to one of their feasts and celebrations and eat idol meat, I can. Paul does not challenge that statement yet. What he does is to say, let's just grant the assumption that you were right and you have the freedom to go to idol feasts. If your weaker brother is caused to do what you do and for him it is sin, you have caused him to sin and therefore it is wrong because of what it does to somebody else. But by the time he gets to chapter 10, he says, you cannot sit at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It is crystal clear in chapter 10, you can't do it. It is not so clear in chapter 8. Then why cannot that be true in chapter 11 as opposed to chapter 14? He raises a question but he doesn't give the conclusion till the end. So in my estimation, 1 Corinthians 11, while it's the strongest of their arguments, is weak. Now the logical arguments. We live in a different time and culture. I've I've been down this trail with you before, but it's just very clear. Several times in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I'm sending Timothy, chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. I'm sending Timothy. He's going to teach you my ways as I practice everywhere in every church. Not ever does Paul say, this is true for Corinth, but of course it's not true for Ephesus. He teaches the same thing from one church to the other. Uh, Verse 33 uh, of chapter 14, as in every church. <laughs> Folks, there's no difference between one another. Now, I'm, I'm going to make a caveat here. I think I put an asterisk on that, didn't I? And, and, and here's the, the little caveat. There are differences in culture in, to this degree. If, if you were a Jew, you could be circumcised without problems. And and remember, Paul had Timothy circumcised. He was half Jewish. Wouldn't circumcise Titus because he wasn't. But you could could, uh, observe the uh, feasts. You could observe the, the Jewish ceremonial rituals because that was a part of your history. I'll even be willing to say your cultural tradition. And and that's why Paul will say, don't judge one another with respect to these things. So that in the Christian community, there were Jews that may observe Passover or, or some particular holiday. Fine. Because that was a part of their tradition. But Paul clearly demarks what those are. He clearly indicates what those areas are. And they have to do with where you came from, Jew versus Gentile. Other than that, Paul's arguments in 1 Timothy 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, they are not based upon culture. They are based upon creation, the order of creation, purpose in creation, and the fall. There is not a cultural argument there. And so please don't say that now that we're in a different culture, it's all another set of rules. That's frightening to me. I mean, are we going to say we're in a different culture? The gospel is now different? We're not going to apply that in other areas of truth. We shouldn't apply it here in terms of the truth. Uh, Second argument, but the men aren't leading. (laughs) And, And I want to say as an aside, and if the women do, they never will. It is true, and I'm going to deal with this a little bit later. It is true 
that some of what takes place is because of the passivity of men, like it was, in my understanding, at the fall itself. Adam was with her, the text says, but silent. So I'm saying, yes, that, that, may, be, that may be the case, but remember Saul. Saul, remember, was told to wait until Samuel came and offered the sacrifice before he went to battle. And, and Samuel appeared to be late, and Saul forced himself because Samuel wasn't there. He lost his kingdom for stepping outside of the boundaries that God had given to him. He was king. He was not prophet. He had no right to offer that sacrifice. So there is no permission to step outside of your boundaries, as I understand it, uh, because the men have not led. I think you've got to trust God to... to uh, spur them to action. Thirdly, uh, but we're not the church. We're a seminary. We're a Bible school. We're a mission organization. Folks, if you name the name of Christ and you are doing the work of Christ, you are a part of the church and the rules do not change. I just, I just cannot find that an acceptable thing to say what we do here is different from what the church does on the outside of these walls. We are the church if we're part of the body of Christ. D, but there's all those different views. <laughs> and that's one, of the, that's one of the ones that always comes along is that you see this great list. And, and it's why I confess, uh, I've I blurted out and, and Hampton doesn't agree with me on this point, but, but you know in those books that say the four views of the millennium and the four views of this and that, I hate those books. And I'll tell you why. Now, I know, I know, as Hampton would say, it, it, it's important to know what those arguments are. He's right. He's right. But what I don't like is the inference that because there are four views, who's to know? And, and especially maybe, you know, if, if I'm sitting out there in the pew, I'm saying, well, if, you know, if the scholars can't agree on this, how can I? That frightens me. Uh, I was, I was in a church years ago up in the Northwest, and, and I was being quizzed on my ecclesiology. And I'll never forget this guy said to me, you are really dogmatic. And I said, would you like a preacher here who wasn't? Who, who, who got up and said, well, you know, there's this view. I mean, I, we, there's this view and there's that view and there's this next view. And everybody takes their pick and away they go. No, there's got to be some thus saith the Lord. Now, there are things that I'm not dogmatic about and I won't preach dogmatically on them. But I got to tell you, to me, it's clear. And the fact that there are lots of views doesn't, doesn't shake me a bit. I go to John chapter 7. When you see all these different views about who Jesus is, oh, he's Elijah, he's this, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's another text. But, but basically these, these folks are saying, he's a good man. Other people are saying, well, how can he? Well, he, he didn't come from, from Nazareth or, or, or he came from Nazareth, but he didn't come from, from Bethlehem, they think. And, and they have all these different views. Folks, one view was right. And it didn't matter whether there were 50 alternate, alternative views. One view was right. And those who had that view of Jesus were right and they were saved and the others were not. So I don't care how many views there are. It just doesn't, it doesn't impress me. I've got to hurry to my conclusion. John 7 and the truth. And, and let me sum this up for you in a nutshell because you'll probably be ready to go out and get the, oven, the, uh, the roast out of the oven. But it's all about the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. Thanks to Charlie Raymond for raising that in the worship time. It is all about God's glory. Look at John chapter 7. 
They, they hear Jesus in verse 15. How does this man know so much when he's never had formal instruction being interpreted? He never went to our seminary. Uh, how could he know anything without being in our school? And Jesus replied, my teaching is not from me, but from the one who sent me. Anyone who wants to do God's will, he will know about my teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. The person who speaks on his own authority desires to receive honor for himself. I would rather say glory. And the one who desires uh, the glory of the one who sent him is the one who has integrity. You know what? I, I could name some preachers, and I'll bet you could, who, who uh, when you hear them, it's all about them. It's, it's all about them. And, you know, everybody's talking about them and the billboards and whatever. And I know other preachers where you have the sense that the only thing that guy cares about is God. And he gets up and he's speaking to the glory of God. And I want to tell you, folks, when you find somebody like that, listen. Listen. Jesus is saying people who are out for their own glory can't be trusted. Acts chapter 20 Uh, Remember when Paul's talking about the wolves that will rise up? They're going to come up with various teachings. Why? Because they have to step outside the boundaries of what is revealed in Scripture if they're going to get a personal following. It's the people who say, like John the Baptist, follow him, follow him. It doesn't matter whether you follow me. It doesn't matter whether I increase. I should decrease. Follow him. Those are the kinds of people. It's about God's glory. People who seek the glory of God in their preaching are people who are telling you what God wants you to hear. Now, it's all about the glory of God in terms of the people who listen. I've got to go down this bottom one. They, remember, the, the, the authorities are hearing the people, and they're all, they're all trying to figure out about Jesus, and they realize if they don't step in soon, they're going to be in trouble. So they send the the security guard, uh, the security police to go arrest Jesus. And I love this. This old squad of folks, they go off, these tough guys, and they're breaking their way through the crowd and whatever. And one guy says, wait, 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 hold up. What is he saying? The other guy says, wait, 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 yeah, let's listen. And pretty soon they're saying, oh, well, I'm not going to, you arrest him. I'm not going to arrest him. They go back and and, and the authorities say, well, wait, why haven't you brought this guy back? Nobody ever spoke like this one did. Now, here's what I want to get. They say uh, this. You haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? Be careful, folks. Be careful about those authorities who tell us something that flies in the face of what is clearly true. My point is the scholars missed it. The security guards got it. Last point. This whole thing is really, I I say to myself, what is it that is the desired end? Go back to the fall. Satan offered Eve knowledge. What would knowledge do? It would make her equal with God. See, when we say to God be the glory, and when we talk about the holiness of God, we're saying God is utterly different from us. He is separate from us. He is there and we are here. We are sinners. He is holy and righteousness and righteous. And so we glorify Him because He is different. When we seek to be like God in that sense, getting knowledge was her glory. That's what she thought. Satan conned her into believing it was her glory to get knowledge when her glory was to trust God. That's what this is all about, friends. 
It's all about who gets the glory. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about the head covering, he's talking about the woman's hair is her glory. And she puts something over that to veil her glory. I want to say, I've got more to say on that point, and I'm not trying to make this the standalone test. There are other things that women get glory from today, and they ought to be covered too. Let me be crystal clear on that. Anything that gives us glory that rightly belongs to him is wrong. And that principle applies to men equally as it does to women. We dare not usurp his glory. Father, we want you to have the glory. It's you that has been raised, uh, has raised up the Lord Jesus to be exalted above all earthly and heavenly powers. It is he who is the one to be glorified in the church, and we ask that that would happen here. May those of us who teach seek to bring glory to him. May those of us who follow seek to bring glory to him and not strive for glory for ourselves. There is someone here who is still in rebellion against the Lord Jesus and his work upon the cross. We ask they would acknowledge their sin and they would trust in the Lord Jesus and in this way give him glory as the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.